2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 2 to 16. Let's give our attentive listening to the reading of God's holy inerrant word. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you would give us ears to hear you, uh, ears in our hearts, our souls, uh, to hear in a a humble, uh, receptive manner, uh, in a way that will translate into change uh, in our lives, our conformity to your Son, uh, for that is our desire, Lord. Uh, So help us in this. uh, Send your Spirit to instruct us and guide us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, We're continuing uh, in our series, In Pursuit of a Healthy Church, and we've been particularly focusing on the, the relational and cultural pillar that must be present Um, in a church for it to grow in a healthy way. And a topic that I'd like to bring your attention to and get you to start thinking about, even if it's just peeling the first layer of an onion, uh, is the topic of conflict. And uh, we're going to peel sort of the principal layer. Okay, Today we don't have time to get into the the practice layer of it, the, the actual practical methods of biblical conflict resolution, but today we'll just look at some big principles, principles behind biblical conflict resolution. Um, Conflict is such a part of our reality, isn't it? It's uh, really not a matter of if, but when you're going to experience conflict. And I want to just start off with two, what I think are encouraging notes about conflict, right? Uh, 
let's start on the positive as we get into this topic of conflict. Um, for one, when I think about conflict, um, I think the presence of conflict is actually a strong indicator for the presence and existence of God. Uh, there are a lot of arguments for the existence of God. For me, conflict is one. Because if conflict is real, sin is real. Uh, if sin is real, then moral righteousness of God, by which we distinguish and discern what sin is and what holiness is, they're real as well. Um, conflict, if it's really meaningful, right, and, and it's, not, it's more than just brain chemistry, if conflict is real and it's meaningful, then so is God's righteousness and moral rightness. In the absence of God, what do we have? Uh, a world where conflict is not immoral, but totally natural. Uh, the naturalistic narrative of origin is that we're here not despite of conflict, but because of it. Uh, because there was a lot of strong eating of the weak, uh, strong conflicting against the weak. The, f the fit conflicting against the unfit, the natural select naturally selected conflicting with the, the naturally deselected. Um, conflict is, should not feel conflicting at all. Conflict is who we are, it's how we got here, it's embedded in our universe, in our DNA. Okay. We should thank conflict for bringing us uh, this far. Um, but, however, if there is something deep inside you that does cry out against conflict as if it's something wrong, uh, then you have to realize that there's something in you that is echoing the biblical narrative of your origin, not the secular one. Uh, that the most probable explanation for that heart desire in you is that you originate uh, from a place of peace, not conflict. That you originate out of order and not disorder. Uh, you originate out of purposefulness, not aimlessness. So conflict, I think, confirms the, and, and I think evidences the Christian origin story. Creation out of order um, and only sin that later enters into plunge us into chaos, which gives us the only, I believe, the only rational basis for which we can look at conflict and say, there's something wrong with that. And look at conflict and say, that shouldn't be the way things are. And apart from that biblical narrative of, of sin ruining order, uh, conflict entering and disrupting peace, we really don't have any basis um, for feeling conflicted about conflict. Okay. I find that encouraging. Uh, every time I encounter conflict, therefore, I can turn to Scripture. And that's the second encouraging note about it, is, is Scripture itself, how Scripture, the Bible, is all about resolving and, over time, reducing conflict. It doesn't just explain the origin of conflict for us, it resolves and reduces conflict for us. That's what the Bible is all about. First and foremost, how God resolves a cosmic conflict between God and fallen creation, and how he gives us, as he redeems us, a way of even reducing conflict in the midst of current sin and brokenness. Our passage being one example of that. Okay. So Christians who believe the gospel uh, are not simply those who say with their words, right? Um, I believe in Jesus Christ, that he's the son of God and that he is the savior of sinners and by trusting in him, I have eternal life. But believing that, you have a way of effectively 
biblically resolving conflict. Um, Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, conflict resolvers, in other words. Christianity is a conflict-resolving religion. Uh, it's primarily how God resolves the conflict between himself and creation, and then he horizontally enables us to reconcile conflicts amongst ourselves. And, and, and that, that is what Scripture is principally about, and that gives us a lot of hope. God is not a doctor that you visit one day with your issues who looks at your symptoms and says, that's interesting. I, I have no idea how to deal with that. He looks at it and says, yes, that's exactly what, I, what I'm here for. I can address that for you. Here are your prescriptions. That's what scripture uh, is principally about. And God comes to us with that kind of realism about what we deal with from in our day-to-day, right? He sees it all, right? He knows it all, um, and he, he wants to deal with it all. And we find nothing in God's Word that shows any signs of, of cynicism or pessimism about uh, our conflict. There's nothing that communicates, oh, here you go again. You Christians are always this way, always conflicting with one another, and uh, I'm so tired of you, and I've been there and done that, and I'm not going through that again. I'm not going through church hurt again, and um, goodbye and good riddance. There's enough hope, there's enough good news in his word to always move us as his people towards hope, towards healing in the midst of conflict. We have a God who is a realist, who is not a pessimist. Uh, a God who is knowledgeable without being cynical. Okay. Um, and a God who doesn't just cry about our problems, but brings us actual solutions. So even though conflict is something we deal with, is something that is a part of our reality, we can't fully avoid it on this side of heaven. It is something we can resolve and reduce, even now, with the help of God and his word. Um, And we have to understand this as as therefore the body of Christ, as the church. If we really believe in this religion, if we we call ourselves Christians, uh, then we have to be peacemakers, and we have to know how God calls us to to do that and how to go about... um, doing that, and consider that to be one of the genuine marks of our faith, Um, peacemaking, conflict uh, resolving, all right? Um, The the two big points I want to draw from our passage today are Paul's heart behind this conflict in Corinth and Paul's hope behind this conflict in Corinth. Just looking at Paul's heart, Paul's hope, and in Paul find a, an example, a good example of a Christian in conflict, okay? Um, but here's some context to the conflict in Corinth, just to give you the, the backdrop of the story a little bit. Corinth was one of the churches uh, that Paul had planted. He planted and pastored it for, for close to two years before he moved on to his further missionary journeys. Um, and after he left, he would continue to uh, correspond with them through his pastoral letters, First Corinthians being one of them. And in that letter, he addresses various issues, um, especially regarding church unity, deals with practical things like marriage and, and sexual ethics and things like that. After writing that letter, he, there's, a, there's a trip he takes to visit them and reunite with, with the Corinthians. 
At which point, um, a very serious conflict arises. There seems to be some kind of falling out uh, taking place between the Corinthians and Paul. The details are not clear. It could be that you know the, one of the church leaders really opposed Paul for some reason, uh, maybe for something he wrote in that letter in the first Corinthians, or that the whole church was against what Paul was uh, writing in the first letter. It's not clear. We don't know for sure. What is clear is that the, the conflict was so contentious and it remained unresolved uh, that Paul had removed himself from, from, their, from that church physically, perhaps to de-escalate things. Um, and then he continues to pursue the Corinthians through more letter writing. Um, he writes another letter, uh, a letter we don't have, but based on what we do have, it seems to have confronted them in that letter. He, he seems to have confronted them pretty directly about their sins, uh, warning them of the danger of completely falling away from, from Christ uh, if they continue in this practice. Uh, some theologians posit it may have something to do with their disobedience to what he wrote in 1 Corinthians. Again, we don't know for sure. What we do know is that uh, the Corinthians opposed Paul. They, they caused him a lot of you know, pain and wounds and they were unrepentant. They essentially kind of kicked him out. Um, and Paul is from a distance writing to um, continue to pursue and reconcile with the Corinthians. And Paul, having sent this letter, uh, he actually goes into what looks like a season of depression even, saying he was downcast having sent this letter, which means he felt hopeless, he felt dejected. Um, he was struggling, wrestling, um, a lot as he sent the letter and awaiting uh, response or, or just in that period of silence of no response. Then Titus, uh, his co-minister, uh, who was delivering the letter for Paul, brings back news from Corinth, from the Corinthians. There's an update. And the update is that the Corinthians are now repentant and that they are willing to be reconciled to Paul and be reunited with him. And Paul is overjoyed, and he writes immediately another letter to send ahead of him, even before he gets to Corinth to reunite them physically, he sends a letter ahead of him uh, to, to be received as soon as possible to share his, his words of comfort and his words of joy and words of thanksgiving, and that letter is 2 Corinthians. Okay, That's the context of, of this. Now, here's what's interesting about all of this, I think, uh, that the Bible gives us more details about the context behind the conflict and the, the process that's involved in the conflict resolution than the conflict itself, as if we have no idea what the conflict is. <laughs> what we are given is how Paul responds to it and engages with the Corinthians, but not what. We're given the how, but not the what. And, and, and why is that? I think one possible answer is, um, ultimately, it, it really doesn't matter what the conflict is. How many conflicts have you gotten into and have resolved and thereafter completely forgotten about what the substance of the conflict was? How many arguments have you gotten into where, you, where some time passes and you go, I don't even know what we argued about? Um, it's not ultimately important what the conflict is about, but the emphasis made here is the how or the process, okay? And the process essentially involves, when it comes to the big ideas, the big principles, a certain heart, 
and a certain hope. Um, that's what I want to expound on um, from just a few few verses in our passage today. Uh, for the sake of time, we don't have to go into every verse today, but here, here are a couple of things I want to draw out from the passage. The heart of Paul, the hope of Paul. So point number one, the heart. What is the heart of Paul that we see here? Uh, take a look again at verse two, and let's, right, let's hear this slowly. Make room in your hearts for us. Make room in your hearts for us. Um, first of all, Paul is showing here a certain concern for anyone in Corinth, right before he even gets there, anyone in Corinth who might still be feeling unsure if they can truly be reconciled to Paul, right? Um, can, I, can I really be friends with Paul again? Can I really be made right with Paul again? And Paul is saying to them, hey, prepare room in your heart for me because I'm coming back to you. Uh, it reminds me of the, the hymn, Joy to the World, where there's a line that goes, um, uh, every heart, let every heart prepare him room, right? And heaven and nature sing. Why? The Lord is come. And, and he comes to make his blessings known far as the curse is found. Let earth receive her king, right? Um, it's, a, it's in the similar vein. He's saying, be ready to receive me. I'm coming to you. I'm coming to you with my blessings. Um, it's also reminiscent of the way Jesus said to Zacchaeus, right? Uh, Zacchaeus, come down from that tree. Don't just observe me from a distance. Uh, Make room in your house for me because I'm coming over, right? Uh, Paul is similarly saying, I am coming to you. I want to be close to you. I'm gonna, I want to be intimate with you. I want to have fellowship with you. So make room in your heart for me. That's a Christian in conflict. Making room in your heart for the one you're in conflict with. Uh, this does not mean... Paul has completely given up on confronting them about their sins. Not at all, right? He stands by that. That's why he says, we have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one, which is to say, we haven't misled anyone or, or abused our authority. We, we brought to you God's truth for, for your sake, for your purity, for your health, right? Um, so that you will not deviate from God's word and live a life that's, that's deviating from that. We stand by that as your apostles, but he goes on to say this in verse 3. I do not say this to condemn you. Or I do not say this, meaning I'm, I'm still for you as I say this, as I present you the truth that you need to hear. I'm not against you. I'm for you. I'm saying what I'm saying, not to reject you, but to love you with this truth. He goes on to say, for, I said before, that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Don't you know that you carry this much weight in our hearts, in, in Paul's heart, in, in Titus's heart, and would be willing to live and die with you? That's how much we care for you, and that's why we are saying the things we are saying. Not to be against you, but to be utterly for you. And we have made such room in our hearts for you, so make room in your hearts for us. Okay. Um, Paul's intentions here, right, it's made very visible. He's not interested in reminding them how winning his arguments are and how true his points are uh, over against their points. 
His intention here is to win the people, not the argument. Okay? And that's another mark of a Christian in conflict. When Christians are in conflict, you don't seek to win an argument. You seek to win the person. You seek to win uh, the person. Uh, he, this is what he goes on and on about. Uh, verse 4, I'm acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort. In all affliction, I'm overflowing with joy. He's expressing his feelings towards them. Verse 7, as he, he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. So here's my heart towards you. Here's your heart towards us that we've received, and that's all the joy I need. It's all the assurance I need. It's all the comfort I need uh, in my affliction. His heart in the midst of conflict is to find comfort and joy in the relationship restored, not in the arguments won. Again, does he surrender his truth? No, right? Uh, he, He speaks with great boldness. That's what he means. And yet, the boldness is intended to draw near to the sinner and not to, not to cast them away. It's to win them over, not to score points against them and shut them down. Right? And this is, this is one of those balances that Christians must strike when they find themselves in conflict. It's an admirable balance between um, not being silent and speaking the truth, but doing so in a relationally caring and loving way. Because you give up on something so essential when you either speak the truth without love and you have love without truth. Neither, neither represent the true love of God he wants us to share with our neighbors. I want you to think about this some more, just on a more personal level, and see how this applies to you. And think about how you generally uh, respond to conflict. There are generally, not absolutely, generally um, two kinds of people. Um, and I'll place them on maybe two ends of a spectrum. There are those who find conflict very difficult because any level of aggravation is, is discomforting. It's, it's disliked, not preferred. And then there are those who find conflict kind of familiar, and they're rather comfortable um, with, with conflict because they enjoy a bit of aggravation now and then. Uh, they enjoy a bit of that, that confrontation. And, and for the second group, then, conflict comes more easily, and the danger there may be that um, you may stir up conflict even when it's not necessary or when it's completely avoidable. Uh, you may still run into more conflict than usual. Well, does that mean that we should prefer the first group where um, you naturally just kind of avoid conflict uh, whatever cost? No, not at all, because resorting to that, avoiding any aggravation, also runs a risk of never speaking up even when deeply caring for someone necessitates that you speak up. Um, And what happens at best is you have relationships that are intact, but they're shallow at best because you never speak the truth, even the hard truth. Here's maybe an analogy that might be helpful. Um, Again, generally speaking, uh, you may have either the relational style of Bruce Wayne Batman, um, or Barry Allen, the, the Flash. Um, Batman is very self-sufficient, uh, very distanced. He's aloof. He, he's okay with sharing as little as possible about his life. He, he doesn't warm up to anyone, only a very select few. 
To, to most others, he's very cold. And he seems to be safe in that, but that's only because he keeps to himself in his cave. Um, no one can get close enough to hurt him. And so his relationship with his neighbors are rather shallow. On the other hand, there's Barry Allen, and this is a guy who just needs people. Uh, right? What was the first thing he tells Batman when he meets him? I need friends, right? Um, so this type of person may be dominated by relationships, maybe too much for their own good, where there's a huge need to be liked, need to be perceived positively by other people, never criticized by anyone. Uh, being criticized even by one person makes their world fall apart, um, which likewise keeps this person's relationships shallow because confrontation almost never happens even when it's necessary. Are you more of a Bruce Wayne or are you more of a uh, Barry Allen? Are you more relationally self-sufficient or are you more relationally needy or are you somewhere in between or do you swing back and forth from one then uh, to the other the reason why it's important for you to think about this and become a bit more self-aware is because you have to realize how this affects the way you manage conflict if you're more of a bruce wayne over here right um, you will feel rather indifferent to burning a few relational bridges now and then right i'm okay on my own i am self-sufficient I don't need to resolve this conflict either. I mean, if they want to resolve it, fine. I'm not going to do anything because I'm okay with burning these bridges and retreat to my cave. Um, that's not a healthy way of, not a Christian way of resolving conflict. But then what if you're a Barry Allen over here? How would that affect your, your conflict management? Well, you will never speak up about it. Your conflicts will always remain unresolved because you don't want to run into any aggravation because it's very discomforting. So you will have a lot of relational bridges intact, but they're very short bridges that don't go very far. It can't go the distance with you. These are very short bridges. Do you see the two errors that come from both ends of that spectrum, both ends of that extreme, if you will? Um, this is what messes up our, our balance. Uh, on the one hand, people can matter too little. On the other hand, people can matter too much. Okay. Um, but here's what these two types have in common. There's a common denominator, and the common denominator is whether you are relationally self-sufficient or relationally needy, we're just doing what makes us feel good, right? I'm gonna do what I do because that's what makes me feel good. And we consider that to be more primary than what is most helpful to my neighbor. Uh, what do I prefer over what is most helpful and preferred for my neighbor? The heart, in other words, right, whether you're on this end or this end, is self-absorbed, self-concentrated, selfish. And, and that makes us lousy neighbors. Um, and, it, and it messes up our balance and, and causes us to care either too much for people or too little for people. Point I'm making is, Paul's heart is neither. Uh, what is his heart focused on? The Corinthians, devoted to them, their benefit, their well-being, their good, their restoration, their right standing with God. He's not doing this because he has this Barry Allen type of, oh, I need the Corinthians to like me. He would never have confronted them if that was the case. 
He would not have written a letter that causes him to be depressed and causes them to be grieved if he wanted to be a Barry Allen. But he would not be pleading with them with love, pleading with them with this angst, with this persistence and with this endurance if he did not have this kind of enduring love that accompanies that truth. Okay. How is this possible for Paul? The, the simple, simplest way to put it is his heart made room for them and more so for them than for himself. When a Christian is in conflict, what a Christian ought to do is to make more room for the person you're in conflict with than making room for yourself. Paul's not preoccupied with how right he is and how wrong they are and how logical he is and how illogical, how strong his arguments are and how weak their arguments are. Even if he was, even if he is right, and he is in what he points out, he only uses that truth for them to draw them in, to make room for them in that truth. He only speaks the truth in love. And I'm pretty certain if he wasn't ready to do so, he wouldn't have spoken at all. He spoke the truth in love and he loved with truth as well. The hard question then, right, that we as believers have to ask in the midst of our conflict is how can I make more room for this person I'm in conflict with in my heart, more room for them than for myself? What an utterly Christian question, right? Secularly speaking, that's a crazy question. It's a dumb question. It's a foolish question. It doesn't, it doesn't give you enough self-care, right? It doesn't protect yourself enough. It's putting yourself in a vulnerable position. It's the Christian who asks, how do I make more room in my heart for the other person than for myself? Because that was the heart and that is the heart of Christ. Welcoming us, uh, loving us, caring for us, uh, enduring with us, uh, even, even on the cross, even on the cross, making room for us there, making room for us on the cross, making room for us in his heart, making a room for us in his kingdom, in his home. And if that's our Lord and Savior, and he lives inside us, then, then this becomes possible for us as we pray to him, Lord, I am only angry, I'm only frustrated, I'm only bitter because my tiny little heart does not have space for this person I'm in conflict with. So would you please replace my heart with yours? Because with my heart, this is impossible. But with your heart, I can do this. I can do what you can do because your heart had space for me for a wretched sinner like me. And if I would just have your heart then, Lord, I can do what you do. That becomes our prayer. Our prayer becomes, Lord Jesus, give me your heart because I want to be like you. I want to be like you more than I want to be like me. Uh, that was the heart of Paul. The heart of Paul wasn't the heart of Paul. It was the heart of Christ in Paul. His heart replaced by 
uh, the heart of Christ. Christ increasing, Paul decreasing. That's how he was able to speak so much truth with so much love at the same time. And, and that heart is conveyed, communicated through every word, every verse in this letter to the Corinthians. Both love and truth, confrontation and comfort, rebuke and welcoming. And we can do this through Christ who gives us strength. We can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. And if that verse matters to you, it's got to matter in your conflict resolution. That through Christ who gives you strength, you can make room in your heart, even for your enemies, even for the one that you're in conflict with. And this relates to our second big point, and that is our hope. The hope that Paul had in the midst of this conflict. What is... What was the ultimate hope uh, that was driving Paul to not give up, right? Not walk out on the Corinthians, but keep pursuing and writing to the Corinthians. Uh, it wasn't his hope in his own sort of persuasiveness, right? If they only read more of what I write, and if they only just intake more of my amazing arguments about how wrong they are, Surely they will come to their senses. That was not Paul's hope. His hope was in God. Verse 9, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. Not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. That means Paul's reason for rejoicing here was not in Corinthians now seeing things the way Paul sees and grieving over that. Oh, how foolish we were, how wise Paul was, but that they're seeing things now God's way. That's what repenting is, aligning our perspective with God's. That was what Paul was hoping for, and having come to fruition, that is what Paul rejoices in. God having taken an effect on their hearts and drawing them to himself, to God. The Christian hope in conflict resolution is not in man repenting before man or women repenting before woman. It's ultimately in man and woman repenting before God. When person A gets into conflict with person B and all that A wants is for B to repent before A and, and surrender to A, you're at an impasse. Why? B wants the same thing. Right? All that B wants is for person A to surrender to position B. Right? And so naturally, what happens is you, you're, you're both trying to convert each other. And um, the only hope you have in that moment is for your arguments, your case, your prosecution to be stronger than their defense. You find yourself in a courtroom, a court battle against each other. You, you keep appealing to maybe the higher courts, but ultimately, right, you're bringing more evidence against them, they bring more counter evidence against you, and so on and so on. If your hope is that A was surrendered to B or that B was surrendered to A, that conflict will never be resolved. What if, what if their hope was in something else? What if their hope was in being made right, not to themselves or to the other person, but with God? What if both persons were to pause for a moment 
and remember that their hope is not in person A surrendering to B or B surrendering to A, but for both A and B to surrender to Christ. What would please him? Let's do that together. What happens immediately then, uh, person A and B suddenly get on the same team because they have a common agenda now. As they agree, what's more important than what A or B wants is what Christ wants. They're on the same team. They're pursuing the same goal. But because they're both fallen individuals, they know they both need God's grace to reach that goal and both need each other's encouragement to reach that goal. And you work together towards that common goal of pleasing, not themselves, not even the other person, but Christ. This is, right, very often what happens in uh, our couples counseling, isn't it? Right, we share, we listen, we seek to understand, and then we ask, how can you, husband, uh, please your Lord Jesus more than you seek to please yourself or even your wife? And how can you, wife, seek to please your Lord and Savior more than you please yourself or your husband? And how can you both, as husband and wife, humbly rely on the help of Christ to make you more and more like him and conform more and more to him and not make the other person conform more and more to you? Then in that very act of you know, taking the log out of your own eye, repenting of your own sins, you find true resolution in your conflict. Because the, the true conflict there isn't right, A not going with B or B not going with A. The true conflict is we miss, we, we lose our grip on the true purpose of our lives, and that is to please our God and glorify Him. The conflict is me. The conflict is my lack of repentance. The conflict is my hoping in something other than God. But if our hope is in God, right, then our repentance is hopeful. It's, it's always coming to our gracious Savior who always forgives and always restores. And we can always regain, therefore, our joy of salvation, the joy of our conflict with God being resolved, and therefore the joy of resolving smaller, smaller conflicts we have with our neighbors. This is the fruit of godly repentance, fruit of godly grief. This is what he says in verse 9, for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss. You suffered no loss through us. Godly grief, as in grief over our offense against God, not pleasing Him, that is never a loss to us, but only to our gain. When you see, first and foremost, how you are called to change before God, before you try to call others to change and please you, um, you gain something. You gain, right, first, your right standing with God, and as you graciously approach your neighbor, you gain that person as well. When a husband humbly right, repents before God first and shares that confession with his wife, he doesn't just gain a, a, a clear conscience before God, he gains his wife, and vice versa. Uh, you win the person. You win the person. This was Paul's hope for the Corinthians. Not that the Corinthians would first and foremost, be restored to Paul, but that they will be restored first and foremost to God through godly grief, godly repentance. And his hope also was not in 
himself having enough strength and love to forgive them and pursue them, but in God's gift of godliness, Christ-likeness, the gospel, the promises of the gospel that he find in Christ so that he would have the strength to never give up, to never give up. How can we ever give up if we are hoping in the one who did not come down from the cross? Right. Uh, if he stayed on the cross, if our Savior stayed on the cross in order to love us and reconcile with us and to pursue us, how dare we walk out on anyone, on any relationship? If that is how abiding and, and remaining our God was for us, then we ought to be abiding and remaining and enduring with those that we're in conflict with. And when you approach conflict with this hope, Paul is absolutely right. We will suffer no loss. We will only gain. Right? Godly grief will only make us gain more of Jesus, more of his love, more of his salvation, and also our neighbor. So our ultimate hope in conflict goes much further than our neighbor being made right with us, gaining, gaining just... Um, this right relationship that, that feels comfortable, uh, it makes us more like Jesus, matures us into his image, and strengthens and deepens, deepens our relationship with our neighbors, does not leave, it cannot be shallow uh, when, you, when you go through this, this kind of conflict resolution with your neighbor. I wanna encourage you guys um, to go from here uh, to begin reimagining yourself a little uh, in the midst of your conflict as people who carry this heart and, and carry this hope. We haven't even gotten to the, the, the methodology, the, the practical things that Scripture gives us in how to step-by-step -step or practically resolve conflict biblically. Uh, we, we will get there. For now, I just want you to hold on to these two principles. Go into your conflicts, right? whatever that may be, with this heart and with this hope. First, this heart that, that Christ readily offers you, gives you. Right? You are not alone in your conflict. Right? There's always, remember, there's always a third person there. Your Savior, your Christ, who's offering you his heart so you would make room for your neighbors, the person you're in conflict with, and as you do so, as you acknowledge his presence, and as you carry his heart in your heart, filter through everything you say through him. How will you express truth and love with the heart of Christ? Uh, what will it sound like if every word you spoke uh, were to be, will to filter through Jesus, his truth, his tone, uh, his gentle and lowly heart? What will that sound like coming out of your lips? And to refrain from speaking until the Holy Spirit gives you that. There's a time to speak and a time to be silent. Right? Reimagine yourself in your conflict, wrestling with the Lord, being present with the Lord, with your third person in the conflict. Reimagine your conflict. And recalibrate your hope. Your hope is not in winning. Your hope is not in... in your strong arguments defeating the weak ones, right? Because that only 
right? It's trying to overcome conflict with more conflict. Your hope is in winning the person the way Christ won you. Through his self-giving love, self-sacrificing love, long-suffering love, enduring love. Hope in his power to provide us godly grief over our own sins first. Hope in being made right with God and therefore rightly being made right with your neighbor. Hope for your neighbor to be made right with God so that you can be properly made right with that person. Hope in the power of godly grief over sin, not worldly grief. Hope in your Savior who who stays, who remains, who ever suffers uh, for the sake of reconciling with us. Hope that such a sacrifice will pay off just as Jesus' sacrifice paid off. Hope that conflict engaged with such a heart and hope will produce something beautiful in the end, just as Christ has. Step into every conflict with such hope. And if you were to, what would that look like? Um, What does suffering in hope in the midst of conflict look like? What does enduring with someone look like? What does remaining with a very difficult person look like uh, for you? So that through that you may evidence how you are yourself a cross-carrying follower of Jesus Christ, truly. Not just in words, but in deed. Because this is who we are. We are Christians. We're not just people stuck in conflict, right? We're not just products of survival of the fittest. We're, we're Christians in conflict. And what that means is we have a Christian answer to conflict, and it is Christ. Christ is with us in our conflict. And so when Christians are in conflict, uh, we don't let conflict rule. We let Christ reign. We let Christ control how we conduct ourselves in conflict. Um, we have had conflicts. You may have conflicts now. You will have conflicts. But take heart because God gives us the right heart and a good hope to resolve at times, reduce at times these conflicts that are part of our reality. He is with us. He walks through conflict with us. So thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we're just, uh, we're just peeling the first layer here, but what an important layer to, to reveal um, where our hearts have been and where our hope has been. Um, we confess, Lord, that, that our hearts were often absorbed in our own wants and our own needs and our own feelings. Uh, we have not made room. We have not made room uh, in our hearts for our neighbors, and we have failed, therefore, to love our neighbors as you have called us to. We ask for your mercy. We ask that you make room for us now in your forgiveness, in your grace, in your church, uh, so that, Lord, we will be restored to this mission of peacemaking, of resolving conflict. And, Lord, that by, by your Spirit living inside us, by our union with Christ, by his heart replacing ours, Uh, we will see how even in our lives um, uh, we have room. We have room for our enemies. We have room for people we have conflicts with. Uh, We have room to welcome them in. 
Uh, we have room to be hospitable towards them. We have room to love them, to forgive them, to pursue them. And Lord, we also ask for your hope, your living hope to dwell within us, that our hope will be in being made right with you, right with one another. Our hope will be one day entering a promised land where there are no more conflicts, no more sorrow, pain, nor death. And because we're headed there, because we're promised citizenship in that kingdom, Lord, may we exercise uh, that right now, the, the power now, the hope we have now um, to bring your peace uh, to the earth. Uh, and Lord, may your church, therefore, um, truly receive a king and uh, make room for him and, and make known his peace in, in the midst of this chaotic, uh, conflicted world. Lord, use us this way. Build our church up this way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.